Section number 14 of David and His Friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David and His Friends, a series of revival sermons by Louis Albert Banks. The Love Story of David and Jonathan. Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David, and his garments, even to his sword, and to his bow, and to his girdle. 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4. That was a great day for Israel when David came back with the sword of Goliath in one hand and the head of the giant in the other. He had come down to the army in the morning, a humble shepherd lad, for although Samuel had already anointed him king, it was not known abroad. And now, before the day is over, he is the most picturesque, the most famous hero in all the land. He brings back the bloody trophies of his great victory and stands modestly in the presence of Saul. Saul was not always kingly in his character, but in his physical appearance he looked every inch the king. He stood head and shoulders above ordinary men and had now, for many years, been accustomed to govern and to be ushered into his splendid presence was a thing to remember. Now Saul had been very much impressed with David from the first, and when he had gone out against Goliath, he said to Abner, the general-in-chief of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? But Abner had shaken his head and replied, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. Then Saul said, Inquire thou whose son the stripling is. Of course, on David's return, he was at once brought into the presence of the king. There he stood, the flesh of victory on his face, the great bloody sword, tall as he almost in one hand, and the still bloodier head of Goliath in the other. And Saul said to him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? Joseph Parker aptly says that, David might have startled Saul, as he was never startled in his life, if he had chosen to do so in his answer. Suppose David had said to Saul, Samuel came to my father's house the other day in search of a king. He passed by my brethren one by one. I was sent for at length in the sheepfold, and Samuel anointed me king of Israel. Behold in this bleeding head and captured sword the first sign and pledge of my kingly power. There would have been excitement that day if that had been the answer, but David had rare wisdom in holding his tongue. It is a great thing not to tell all you know on all occasions. It is a strange fact that people who tell all they know usually tell more than they know. It is better never to tell anything unless some good is going to come from it. We have two eyes and two ears and only one tongue which ought to suggest to a man of even limited imagination that the Lord intended we should hear and see together at least four times as much as we tell. David was wise in keeping silent where it did no good to speak, and so instead of giving himself the pleasure of making a sensation, he held his peace and answered with becoming modesty, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. One delightful result to David was that his modesty, taken with the courage and valor which he had already shown, completed the capture for him of the heart of Jonathan, the eldest son of Saul. 
and one of the noblest men that ever lived. David never made a better investment than that. Self-pretension and arrogance and looking out for number one are often tempting, but after all, they are poor shoddy things compared with simple, unaffected helpfulness and manliness. Pretty little story illustrating this comes from Seattle, Jimmy Brennan. Ten years old and son of police officer Brennan of Seattle was standing on Yesler Way when a stranger came along. He looked like a man who had just returned from a logging camp. Boys, he said, where's the Butler Hotel? I'll tell you for a quarter, said one of Jimmy's companions. I'll show you where it is for ten cents, chimed in another. Say, I'll do it for five cents, remarked a third. Mister, said Jimmy, I will point out the butler to you for nothing. You're my man, said the rough-looking stranger, and the two went down Yesler Way together while Jimmy's companion stayed behind to call him a chump. Jimmy led the stranger to the butler. Come in here, said the man, and he led the boy into a clothing store. Give this boy the best suit of clothes in the house, said the stranger. Jimmy simply opened his mouth. Soon, he had on a fine suit. Now give him an overcoat, said the stranger, and Jimmy's eyes tried to pop out of their sockets. The clerk adorned Jimmy with an overcoat. Now a hat, said the stranger. Jimmy wanted to cry. He thought it was Christmas time and that he was by the side of a great fire reading one of Anderson's fairy tales. Soon he was arrayed in new hat, new suit, new overcoat. The stranger paid for all. Jimmy started out of the store. He was so bewildered that if several goblins had put in their appearance, he would have joined them in their fairyland festivities. Just wait a minute, said the stranger. Jimmy waited. If the stranger had said, go roll in the dust of the street, Jimmy would have done it. The stranger went down in his pocket and closed his dealings with Jimmy by giving him a $5 gold piece and a gold nugget worth as much more. Then Jimmy thanked the stranger and went off to tell his companions about the man to whom he showed the hotel butler for nothing. David's experience was much the same in its kind. If he had been self-sufficient and arrogant, he would have driven Jonathan from him. But instead, by his humility and modesty, coupled with his courage and manliness, he won Jonathan's devoted love. And Jonathan immediately sought to make a covenant with David. There would have been nothing strange if David had sought to make a covenant with Jonathan. In such an attempt, any of us would have simply worldly wisdom. But Jonathan was prince of the realm, an heir apparent to the crown, and David only a brave shepherd lad who had suddenly sprung into fame. But Jonathan saw in David something which he loved, and he longed to make David love him as he already loved David. And so he persuaded David to make a covenant of everlasting friendship between them. Now, although David was by this time a famous man in the army, his appearance was very shabby and countrified to the young army officers who hung around the court of King Saul. And Jonathan, loving David as he did, could not bear to have anybody point the finger of scorn at him and sneer at his appearance. And so, as an evidence of his great love for him, he stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David. He dressed David throughout in his own garments. He even went to the length of giving him his own sword and bow and girdle. Now, 
It is my purpose this evening to use this beautiful love scene between David and Jonathan as an illustration of the love which Christ offers us. In the first place, it truly suggests that Christ, the Prince of Heaven, comes seeking a compact with us. It astonishes us to see Jonathan seeking a compact with David, the shepherd boy. But how much more wonderful when Jesus, the Son of God, rich in all the glory of heaven, comes down to earth and suffers hardship and poverty and bitterest temptation and trial and finally dies on the cross for us, that he may be able to make a compact between himself and poor sinners. And what could prompt that? Surely nothing but love could prompt it. Only sweet, precious love could have made Jonathan do such a wonderful thing as he did to David. And only love, indescribable, deathless love, could have brought Jesus down from heaven to die for us. Christ sees something in men, not in good men only, but in bad men. In man at his worst that he loves and that seems to him worth living and dying to save. Someone sings the thought very beautifully. When the Christ my Lord hung dying, dying on the shameful tree, men in all their madness mock him. Yet no word at all said he, but when at his side a sinner, hanging there in shame to die, pleading, sought his loving favor. Swiftly came love's glad reply. When thou comest to thy kingdom, Lord, he cried, remember me, yea, today with me in glory. Jesus answered, thou shalt be. Was not this most wondrous pity? So to bless a dying thief, even amid his own deep anguish, thus to give a soul relief. Tell it in the highest heavens. Tell it in the depths below. Tell it to the lost and outcast. Tell it in the haunts of woe, to the very chief of sinners. Let the blessed tidings go. He who asked the Savior's mercy shall the Savior's mercy know. There is another suggestion that is very precious and comforting. And that is that as Jonathan's love prompted him to give his own clothes to David so that his humble friend might look as much the prince as himself, Christ comes offering to clothe us in his own beautiful garments of purity and righteousness. It is the glory of Christians that Christ helps them to become like himself. Christ does not propose to save us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. Our ragged clothing of sin of evil habit is to be cast off, and we are to be clothed with goodness and gentleness and meekness and love and hope. That is the most glorious thing about Christianity. It is not that a man may be simply saved from sorrow and despair and punishment on account of his sins, but the sinner's nature may be transformed and he may become a prince of God's realm, a holy man. The drunkard may put on sobriety, the gambler may put on honor and integrity. The impure may become wholesome and noble. The low and the vulgar may be lifted up to have high ideas and brave and splendid purposes. And the promise is that this robbing of the soul, this beautifying of the character, shall go on until, when we awaken heaven, we shall awake in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Then, for the first time, we shall see him with perfectly clear eyes, and shall be satisfied, for we shall be like him. There is one other suggestion here which we find also fulfilled in Christ's treatment of the sinner. Jonathan bestowed upon David not only his own clothing, 
but he gave him his own armor and weapons. So Christ equips us with the very weapons with which he battled in this world when he was tempted in all points, like as we are, and yet came off victorious without sin. Paul declares that our Lord gave us the whole armor of God, and that thus arrayed, we are able to withstand all the wiles of the devil. He gives us the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. On our feet, he puts shoes made of the preparation of the gospel of peace. On the left arm, we carry the shield of faith, a wonderful shield that is able to stop every fiery dart in the wicked one. On our brow, he sets the helmet of salvation, and in the right hand, he puts a sword far more splendid than that which David captured from Goliath, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. To all this, he adds communion with himself. Day by day, we may pray to him, and breathing out our hearts to him, we may feel that we have a friend and a brother who will never fail or desert us in any hour of need. I offer you this love of Jesus Christ with all that it means in purity of heart, in successful career, in glorious happiness, both now and forever. Accept it now and be saved. Oh, but you say, I have sinned against his love so long he will not hear or heed me now. That shows you do not know the love of Jesus Christ. No mother ever had a heart so tender as Jesus. A young man was once coming home on the steamer from England to New York and was taken very sick. His friends were alarmed for him and feared he would not live to reach New York. He was anxious to have a dispatch sent at once from the custom house to his mother, who lived in a New England town, that she might come to take him home. A friend sat down beside him to write the dispatch and said, What shall I say? Just say, I am real sick, mother. Charlie. Sign it, Charlie. Well, but shall I not tell your mother to come? Oh, no. When she hears that I am sick, she will come. Ah, he knew that when the mother learned her boy was sick and needed her, the fastest train would seem too slow to take her to him. So when the soul gets sick of sin, Christ will come. If you are sick of your sin and will turn from it tonight, Christ will meet you at the mercy seat and save you. End of section number 14. Read by Kevin Waters, Spring Hill, Florida, August the 3rd, 2021.